Free Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. The Truth to Power Show is a show where every week we place a weekly guest on the proverbial meditation cushion to have a thoughtful conversation um, about how truth empowers us in our communities. So this week we have Ray Printy, uh, Rachel Printy, who um, also knows Ray, uh, graduate of University of Florida, where she studied uh, Spanish literature. She has been published in Read Literary Magazine, Youth Imagination, Chicken Soup for the Soul, and Everyday Fiction. Ray currently resides in NYC, where she enjoys salsa dancing, open mic poetry events, and reading both fictional and non-fictional books with unique points of view. Later this year, she'll be publishing a poetry chapbook collection entitled Broken Altars. Welcome, Ray. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, great, great. So why don't we start the conversation off? Uh, yeah, welcome. And why don't we start the conversation off with about, from your bio, pulling from your bio about the unique points of view, and what, what constitutes a unique point of view? And uh, as, as a reader, uh, before we get into your writing, why don't we talk a little bit as a reader, what, what, what constitutes a unique point of view for your, in your perception? Yeah. Um, well, I think, as you mentioned, I was a Spanish literature major, and I when I was in high school, I lived in Argentina for a little while. I was um, like a Rotary ambassadorial uh, scholarship student. And I I was 17 at the time. And when I was down there, um, that was the first time I sort of was exposed to very unique points of view compared to my own. Mm. Um, growing up, I grew up in Florida. And it was amazing just to get this different uh, perspective from people in a different part of the world. And so then when I went to college the next year... Um, I fell in love with, um, I was in Argentina and I fell in love with, um, a lot of Spanish literature or Latin American literature, I should say, like, um, Horacio Quiroga, Borges. And I decided to study that. And it was just, I think it was eye opening, um, to explore the world in a different way through a different set of eyes than my own. Um, Sandra Cisneros is another one, uh, another author I love to read. And so, um, in my, I, in the books that I choose, um, you would kind of like talking before this, you'd ask some of my favorite books. Um, and a lot of them, one of them was power of one, which takes place in Africa. Mm. Um, one of them is glass castle about a woman who grows up in extreme poverty here in the U S. Um, and it just, um, you know, I kind of grew up in like middle-class America. So it, it gives me um, a different way of seeing the world and, and understanding people who grow up very differently than myself. So even in my own writing, I sort of like to explore that. Um, but those are the books that I tend to be drawn to. Yeah, I think that especially in a time when American conversation seems to be, you know, we have more and more of the, um, you know, diffusion of the American conversation across the globe and everyone seems to be tuning into, you know, quote unquote, Western you know, American TV shows and Western cinema. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. always been a fascination with that. It's important to bring in that cultural perspectives, yeah. integrate that in, make sure we're, we're constantly engaged in the conversation, bring in, bring in what, what they, you know, when we think about the mainstream America, you know, and being, a, being born here and raised here, I also, my parents were kind of, um, what's the word, like kind of reluctant to, they wanted me to integrate, they didn't want me to be like the Indian guy, you know, you mm-hmm. wanted me to be American. Mm-hmm. They weren't too into teaching me the that much. But they taught me like the basics of yeah. culture, but they didn't want me to be perceived as an outsider. Right. Being that I was the born other. here. Yeah, the yeah. other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had, so yeah, yeah, that struggle with how, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, 
it's yeah. just to your point, I have a lot of friends who are raised um, kind of like, you know, they were um, some Latina friends of mine I'm thinking of. Mm. They never learned Spanish growing up, even though mm. their parents were immigrants here because they said, you know, my parents wanted to just focus on English in the house because they didn't want me to feel like an outsider at school. Mm. And now they're really regretting, you know, having to try to learn Spanish as an adult. So I yeah. think to your yeah. point now, I think um, there's more of a conversation about like, no, this is who we are, where we come from. And that's really important that, um, you know, I think uh, people in the U.S. Are, are realizing like the beautiful melting pot we have of other cultures and trying to really celebrate these unique cultures within within the U.S. And I think, you know, when you were growing up, like you were saying there, it was it was a harder time. Yeah, um, there's certain waves, I think, especially around the 70s, 80s. You know, there's certain waves where you have like, uh, you know, Reaganism and all this kind of stuff. And although and conservatism and all this kind of conservative traditional viewpoints. And then you have waves where, you know, we have, uh, you know, revolutionary thought or a progressive thought coming into the country. And then, mm -hmm. and then, you know, later generations were reaping the rewards of that. But then we have, you know, back and forth of that cultural trends. So that it comes back and forth in waves. And we think about mm -hmm. unique points of view. We think about kind of the radicalization or the, or the changing of our own the perspective establishment of our identity and perspective and then the, mm. the dialogue of our identity and perspective with others and having that dialogue, that communion with others yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Super important. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about your own practice, your own writing practice. So why don't you start off with uh, telling us like um, a little bit about what you've been writing and what's been coming up for you as far as what kind of genres you write in. And um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I, um, I'm a short story, literary short story writer. Um, I'm actually working on a novel set in Argentina about the time of the dirty war where, um, back in the late seventies, early eighties, um, a large percentage of, I, I, the quotes are about 1% of the Argentinian population, um, disappeared. Mm. Um, they were taken kind of in the middle of the night by the government. So that is the novel I'm working on. It is yeah. not out, but so I've, um, done some literary short stories. I've done some memoir type pieces like for Chicken Soup for the Soul. One of my first pieces um, was after I went to Mount Kilimanjaro and um, climbed that and had this just amazing um, sort of like emotional, spiritual, physical uh, journey and wanted to share it. And um, I'd always been interested. I would always been a reader um, like in college, like I like I shared, I loved uh, being a Spanish lit major and getting to read all these um, incredible authors from many different parts of the world. And I never really thought about writing myself until after I came back from Kilimanjaro. Maybe I'd like maybe it crossed my mind, but I was more of a journaler. And I wrote this piece about what that experience meant to me. And um my mom read it and was actually the one to encourage me to publish it somewhere. So mm. um, I found I submitted Chicken Soup for the Soul and that was my first published paid piece. But I just talked about um, I had originally gone with my dad and my sister. Um, unfortunately, my dad got kind of sick and my sister um, just got really bad altitude sickness. So at the during the peak summit, it was just me and this guide that I just met that night because our original guide actually had to go back down to the cabin with my sister um, but she'd wanted me, she knew how important it was to me, wanted me to go ahead and um, make it to the top. And I just remember feeling so scared and lonely and, and cold. It was freezing. Like it was not good. Like snot was like frozen in my face. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> breathe. And when I made it to the top, I just, for me, it was kind of like a spiritual thing. And I felt like this was a part of my life. I felt really alone. 
but God helped me get through it. He had provided this like guide in my life to also help guide me. And after I shared that, the response was um, pretty positive from my friends and family. And it gave me the courage to try and write a little bit more. Um, And then I took some classes online through Gotham, actually, which is incredible. If anyone's thinking about writing, a little, little shout out to Gotham. Yeah, Gotham Writers Workshop. Gotham Writers they do Workshop. online as well as uh, NYC-based. Yes. Yep. So, so yeah. I did it online. And through some of the writing exercises, actually, is where some of my other literary short mm. stories came about. Because I think where Susie came about, they had asked about point of view and voice. And um, there was a little girl in my neighborhood who I would see... Um, I was living in East Harlem at the time, walking with her mom and they'd wear these purple gloves and they'd be collecting recycling from the street. Mm. And I'd never seen that before. I came from suburban Florida and um, it just struck me as like, it it was just very emotional for me. And I was like, wow, this, and I lived right across from a playground. So I would see these kids playing on the playground and then I'd see this young girl, she looked like seven or eight and her mom going through the recycling. And it just kind of made me ask myself, what, what, um, you know, how did they get to here in their life? What, what challenges are they facing? What difficulties, where'd they come from? And I think being a writer, it starts with a place of curiosity and also empathy for people who have a different road than yourselves and trying to, um, understand that better. Yeah. And I think one thing I can pull out of what you were saying is that, um, Ultimately, I think the, the, the primal other stranger is the person that we find ourselves to become when we're, when we're put into different circumstances. So right. for you, like going up to the top of the mountain, you know, you were suddenly transplanted into uh, extreme circumstances, into circumstances that you were not used to. Right. And then you're looking at yourself and you're realizing, wow, this is a person or an identity that is very different from the narrative that I've been constructing for myself right. uh, previously. And then you're like, wow, th- now I'm getting the other or the stranger. And what, and I relate with that as being, uh, something that you um, idealize or as deity or deified, you know, that, that this is in contact with divine energy, divine. Uh, yeah. 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 I, th- I yeah. think it's very much, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the us, them perspective, you know, that dichotomy is very much about, you know, how, how the self and how the self can be otherized and how others can yeah. be become ourself. All these kind of that relationship between self and others is very integral to this conversation i think yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. definitely yeah. so yeah so tell us a little bit more about um uh your faith and how it informs your practice you touched a little bit on that yeah. uh let's go into a little more depth uh you mentioned uh c.s lewis of course is someone yeah. who is is a lot of influence on all, many uh faith seekers many christians so tell us a little yeah. bit about when you read uh, this book, Mere Christianity. And, yeah. And, and um, that, yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think. I think I first read it a few years ago when I moved to the city. Um, I had grown up reading um, the Chronicles of Narnia, his mm-hmm. children's books. And I loved it. Um, I didn't realize how, what, like the the deep underlying spiritual themes of the books at the time. Um, it wasn't until later in life. And when I read Mere Christianity, and I love in that book, it's a collection of philosophical essays for those who who haven't read it. And um, I think he addresses intellectually a lot of um, just sort of spiritual concerns and doubts about Christianity. Um, And in New York City, especially, um, you know, I'm so I'm Christian and I've I've really struggled, honestly, with my faith here, because I think all the time you do have people with different faith perspectives and it makes you question, which it's it's a good thing, right? You're going to become it, it helps you like wrestle with different ideas and new ideas. And, but reading that book um, helped me become stronger in my faith because he 
kind of explores and wrestles with some of those same questions that a lot of people have. And, you know, he, I think he was raised, there's an amazing book about him called A Life Observed um, that I recommend to others. It's a biography. And he was raised in this sort of strict Christian household, but didn't really come into his own faith until much later in life. Um, You know, I I think he basically described himself um, as an agnostic for a while. um, And he had this sort of, epiphany moment, but it it took years to get to that place where he started to believe. And I think in the meantime, he was going to different churches and and reading a lot of other um, like Christian writers to explore. And um, I love how he was just honest and open about his struggles. And, you know, not everything is necessarily um, easily explainable. Mm. Um, There's some mystery and, um, but he makes a lot of intellectual, um, just kind of arguments for and 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 it points out some of the evidence for there being a Christ figure and and the role mm. of that Christ figure in his life and yeah so. yeah so now why don't we try to take that narrative and flip it to yourself and how and what ways have you struggled with or what ways have you kind of negotiated the um the doubt and in what ways have you kind of come a stronger uh with your faith uh just try to the same kind of yeah, I think that narrative probably speaks to your narrative. Right. And in what ways have you exemplified that, that um, model? Yeah, yeah, I've tried to just do a lot, similar to what he did at the time, do a lot of reading of other authors. Tim Keller mm. is another, um, he's a he's a pastor, in the city. he's now retired, but he's a pastor in the city. Mm. And a lot of his books um, have really spoken to me. Um, yeah. He wrote one called The Reason for God. And um, I think in just, there's also a, a book I read recently called The Case for Christ because mm. I, you know, I work in healthcare, so I do consider myself a scientist. And I think there was a lot of um, things I was trying to rectify in my own mind. And reading those books um, by these other really smart, intelligent guys who kind of like take things, uh, pick things apart bit by bit and explore them. And, you know, um, that's helped me. And then I also really got plugged in with the Redeemer writers group mm. and, um, you know, just surrounding myself by other people with a really strong belief system. Um, yeah. A sense of community is very important. Oh, you know, yeah. It's one of the integral aspects of our life that we have to have community. We have to support each other. We want to have yeah. a dialogue within that community and as, as well as cross-culturally, you yeah. know, have a dialogue with, and be able to um, understand that the, the nature of, you know, God, the nature of reality, the nature of this universe is uh, we're so complex and we're just immersed in it. We're just kind of fish in the sea that we're just kind of we're thoroughly immersed in it. And we're trying to negotiate our path, negotiate our, yeah. our, our faith, negotiate our understanding of it um, in a way that is uh, exemplary of, of uh, I guess you might, might say, of the Christian uh, Christ consciousness or how would you, like you are like what is the. Um, what is now your mission or what is now, what is your particular, uh, right. and, what is particularly, what is your role in this, in this? Uh, and I think drama. tying it yeah. back into the writing too, yeah. um, I was taking there, there's something called the Center for Faith and Work. I'm, I'm excited. Actually, Christian Wyman is a poet from Yale. He's a professor. He's coming tomorrow. So I get the opportunity to actually go to his talk and write uh, more about his poetry um, through the Center for Faith and Work. So that's coming soon. Yeah. <laughs> a little plug, but um you know, I was taking a class through the Center for Faith and Work, and it was at a time when I was really struggling with my own faith. I'd come out of a bad breakup with somebody who wasn't a believer, and it was kind of the reason we had broken up. Mm. And I was like, you know, God, are you really there? Was it worth it to give up 
this person who I feel like is the love of my life when I feel like our ideas and faith don't converge. And um, basically, I had taken this class um, and it was with a bunch of other artists, uh, writers, dancers. And one of the questions they asked is if my call as a Christian is to love others, how does that affect the way I create? And I thought that was really beautifully put in my writing. And and also I love this quote by uh, Madeline Lingle is, um, you know, uh, writing basically makes us more alive, more human, more courageous, more loving. And I think that's what I want to do with my life and with my writing and with my creative works, whatever it be. Um, and basically it's to try to understand others, love others. I think no matter who you are, you know, tons of money, not powerful, not at the end of the day, we just all want to be loved. And um, I feel like only the true, the one true love that's perfect is God's. Ours mm. isn't. But um, I think in my writing and, and C.S. Lewis does this too, he tries to reflect sort of the hope of his underlying beliefs in a lot of his works, whether it be fiction or not. And um, I also have tried to do that. Um, you know, not a lot of my works aren't religious themed per se. Mm. Um, and I've also written some poetry and actually some of the poetry, it's just more about love and human love in general, but I do allude a little bit to my faith and, and both the poems that I've, I've written. Um, and that'll be out later in, in broken altars mm. and the, the concept behind broken altars. Um, I really have to, st- to thank Stephanie Nicolopoulos. So, you know, she, ca- she came yes. up with it and it's about how, um, our lives, our hearts are altars, um, for God that, um, is coming from a place of sacrifice and the giving up of ourselves to, um, to God to basically use us in any way that he wants in order to love his people, love the world, mm. um, everybody out there. And I think as writers, we get to do that with the, with the works that we create and creating empathy for, I mean, that's my particular mission maybe is creating empathy mm. for, uh, people who may feel like the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good, good. And I think if I give a quick perspective, um, you know, I come from, or I kind of come from the Hindu Buddhist tradition. I've been mostly trained now in, in adulthood in the Buddhist tradition, understanding training of the mind, understanding like how, and I read a quote, uh, it may have been, I'm not sure, it may have been from one of our previous guests, uh, Thomas um, Bukharo, who came on a couple weeks ago. He posted a meme at least, and I think it was one of his, uh, one of his, one of his poems about how, um, you know, writing poetry, you know, we write poems, we write, do writing. I'm kind of horribly paraphrasing it. But anyway, the point is, like, we do writing and it may be forgotten or it may kind of after we die, but our death process has become enriched by the act of writing. Mm-hmm. He kind of said it a little bit more poetically than mm-hmm. I'm saying right now. Mm-hmm. But I think it was very interesting to think about how, um, you know, writing, the process of writing changes our mind, yeah. changes our experience, and yeah. we become kind of a tool, if you will, for mm-hmm. divine energy and or mm-hmm. whatever it is uh, that unknowable um, beings uh, we become a tool, become a, a conduit for that kind of uh, of energy to pass through us. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of losing that sense of like control or identity. We're kind of surrendering to that mm-hmm. identity and that we have to take um, the the empowerment is to take that that I myself will enact. You know, I myself will take the role of uh, this um, higher calling mm-hmm. that we'll kind of take responsibility. Then all of our lives will try to you know, emulate and, and be part of that narrative. So then we're making that conscious choice to, you know, 
to go down that path, that will be forever in our um, consciousness, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think it does. I think when you write, there is something mm. that that does change within you. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of journaling whenever yeah. I go through something hard. Um, and I don't do it as much as I used to. But I think as we journal out kind of our thoughts, feelings, ideas, and then kind of go back and look at it, it the process itself makes you kind of like wrestle with these things more. I like mm. to handwrite for that reason because it, it's a little bit, um, I, excuse me, I like to type my stories, but for journaling, I like to handwrite because I think it gives you more of a an opportunity to sort of, um, as you're actually writing things out, see it on the page and you can grow and learn mm. from these things you're going through. And, and it, it can even, it's funny, change your perspective on things just seeing it written out um and sometimes even get us we get into this pattern of circular thinking yeah and i think sometimes just writing it out we we can escape that pattern and move on and grow and then it's just incredible to look back at old journal entries and see um you know how far i've come in certain ways and how i was just in a completely different mindset in the past than i am now and i find that really encouraging i think definitely logic helps a lot like understanding that when we have a premise, what follows from that premise? And, and you know, actually, I did so I did a course in logic in formal philosophy, philosophical systems. Hmm. And they did, uh, it was very interesting, they had like a um, module, they had like a program, a computer program, where you'd put in uh, mod, node one, and then it would follow, you know, it would follow like almost like scientist diagramming. Okay. From what I remember, because uh, now I it's been a while. terrible at scientist yeah, diagramming. Yeah, it's similar to that. <laughs> but it, it helps to understand. Yeah, definitely. Scientist diagramming is the, the bane, but... Uh, uh, okay. it's definitely a way to understand how logic flows from premises. And uh-huh. it's one way of kind of diagramming out, you know, if, if you have, um, you know, if this were to happen, then what would happen as a result? Uh-huh. And, and yeah. therapeutically understanding that, you know, well, I mean, if, if I'm getting anxious about a certain situation, what is the result of that situation? And, and would I be able to handle rather than returning to all oh, fear based, right. you know, all oh, that's going to happen. Then I won't be able to handle it, mm. but understanding what is the consequence of this action, this premise happening yeah. and then allowing it to flow from there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah I mean, I so. think in life, it, yeah, there's, there's, uh, that's what I explore a lot of in my writing too, is um, I think a, a lot of what we do um, that's not great is based out of fear. That's like the heart yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, I think, think my faith has given me um, sort of the like a heart, not a fear, but of, yeah. of courage and hope. And um, yeah, just like listening to what you're saying, I'll, I'll, you know, we live in New York City. It's a stressful place. Yeah. And the only thing that's guaranteed is that things are always changing and things yeah. are always going to fall apart. Um, so it's trying to uh, know that despite all the like crazy chaos of this world, that um, there's like a there's an underlying beauty there and an underlying hope there. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we take a moment to listen a little bit to your writing Oh yeah. and then we yeah. continue the conversation. Uh, you're going to select, I think, uh, uh, short story you said, or, um, you yeah, start with I, short story? I, okay. what, what else? Yeah. I'll yeah. leave it up to you. Yeah. I'll start. Oh, okay. Sorry guys. Trying to pull this up. Yeah. Um, so I can start with the short story. I also have a poem, which poetry is new for me. I just, uh-huh. I, um, Got the opportunity to write a poem for the um, New York Poetry Festival. So mm. again, thank you, Stephanie. She she snagged us a spot there at the New York Poetry Festival, which is awesome. Happens every summer. A bunch of um, artists come together from very different groups. And um, so 
she'd asked if I wanted to participate. And that was the first poem I, I wrote, which I won't be sharing, but I have another one I wrote for my yeah. friend's wedding um, that I'd, I'd like to share at some point sure. if there's time. Sure, sure. Okay, so this is a clip from Susia. One of my short stories published in Reed Literary Magazine. I walk behind her, or rather, I walk behind the two large bags that trail her, the cans and bottles inside them clunking along the sidewalk. They make too much noise for conversation, so we stay silent. My mother's not much of a talker anyway. Some mornings, though, as she sits me on her lap to brush out my tangled hair, I can convince her to tell me stories about her childhood growing up with mi abuelo, Anita, back in Mexico. But not today. Today, we have work to do. I see yet another trash pile up ahead, one of the many in our barrio. We've been to this one every Saturday since we arrived in New York City three months ago, sorting through it with our thick purple gloves, finding the waste that we can turn into dimes and quarters before the Monday trash collectors come. Mama tells me at five cents per can, this will help pay for my school clothes when I start the third grade this fall. Right now, all I have are the few pieces we were able to stuff into my backpack when we left Mexico. I wonder if she's heard my nickname, the one the neighborhood kids snicker under their breath as they pass by the fruit stand we set up on our corner each afternoon. Susia, they call me, the dirty one. Things will be different soon, Nina. Hold your head up high, she whispers to me on the days my shoulders slump and I crouch down behind our cart to hide. When we return from the recycling plant this afternoon, she'll make a big show of putting the money we collect into the pink piggy bank she bought me. She says by summer's end, there should be enough to buy me plenty of pretty dresses. But I hate getting up before the sun to collect cans with her. And this morning, she almost had to drag me out of bed. I was right in the middle of a beautiful dream. My father was reading me a bedtime story, and I lay curled up next to him. My belly was full from Ita's dinner of tamales with rice and beans. And tucked around my feet, so soft and snug, was my favorite blanket. The one that I had to leave behind. Papa smelled of the cigarillos he would sometimes sneak outside to smoke. And then my mother's face was floating over me as she jostled me from my slumber. The dream slipped away, along with any trace of happiness I'd had. I tried my best to hold on to it, but like fingers intent on grasping at rays of sunshine, it couldn't be done. The warmth of it was replaced by the cold reality of a now-dead father. Tears escaped from the corners of my eyes, betraying me, but I refused to tell Mama why. I knew it would only make her sad, too. Finally, she just sighed and left the room to gather up our day's supplies, warning me that I had ten minutes to get ready. So here I am again, spending yet another Saturday morning digging through other people's waste. I stare down at my shoes as we continue down the sidewalk. My toes are squished together at the points, but I ignore the pain. Soon I'll get some new ones. I'm deciding what color I want them to be when the sound of a boy's laughter off to my left grabs my attention. My head turns towards a park there where I see some kids my age playing on a merry-go-round. My steps hesitate and then slow to a stop. Mama doesn't notice as I walk over the fence that separates us from them. I rest my forehead against the cool metal and slip my fingers through the holes. What would it be like to get to play with them for once? Their faces are flushed with joy and exertion as they whirl around together. I watch for a few seconds, waiting for the scolding that I know is coming since I no longer hear the scraping of the trailing cans. When I glance at her, though, I'm surprised to see her eyes moistening, too. I'm sorry, Iha, but not today. So I I wrote that at a time when the DREAM Act, um, when they were talking a lot about DACA and the DREAM Mm. Act, and it was under reconsideration for... Um, basically the children who children who came over from these other countries um, who are under 18, you know, the question came up if they were able to attend college. And I really wanted to, and the story goes on, um, kind of bring light to, to kind of um, how I felt 
that situation to go, which is that these kids should absolutely have the opportunity to attend college and just kind of for other people to see um, kind of this, I don't know, to to see things through a different point of view mm. than they may have. Yeah, I think yeah. it's important for us to, you know, not, again, we're talking about otherizing self, to be able to see the self in others and be able to, you know, not continue that process of, uh, you know, continue that, that trajectory of otherizing uh, and thinking of them as, thinking of them as them, thinking of these people as, as others, but rather understanding the struggles and, and identifying, you know, the core belief of um, the American dream that we're, you know, and returning and, you know, especially given this political climate, we seem to be drifting further and further away from the essential uh, um, inscription on the Statue of Liberty and, the, and, the, and mm. give us your hollowed masses, you know, give mm. us your, give us the people who are struggling because right. we're going to, we're going to, you know, build them up. We're going to help right. them lift up. We're going to help them grow up, you know, grow in our culture because we are and fertile they're going to build us yeah. up. Yeah. They're going to build they're us up. Exactly. We're, we're fertile yeah. ground for seeds to be right. grown. For these that we're not. Um, different cultures know, yeah. and views and opinions that come in and make us mm. a stronger, better country. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. That we're kind mm. of from the ground up. We're building people up. And uh, I think that even with within the Christian narrative, we have uh, Christ calling out towards people who are, uh, marginalized, Christ calling out to people yeah. who are disenfranchised, that he wants them to reach out to God because God is going to empower them. God is going to, I mean, when you're, you know, you can't, you can't, when you're living fat off the land, so to speak, you can't necessarily accept, uh, you, you're not necessarily interested in accepting, uh, you know, being brought to that perspective of right, like growth, power, you know, money power, become your yeah, become, gods. That, yeah. that becomes your gods. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You're, you're like this, everything's fine the way it is. Yeah. But I think even those people who are living uh, richly or living well can realize that we're all humans that ultimately will discard all these possessions. And, and that's not something that's, that's something very, it's something that's going to change very quickly. Right. And yeah. I was just, it's so funny. I was uh, actually at church last night. I, I now attend church of the city, pastor John Tyson, but he was talking about the, it's, you know, the heart as um, it had to do with the heart as an altar actually, which is funny because our, mm. our poetry book coming out is called broken altars and that it's so easy for us to make these other things in our lives um, idols. So, especially in New York city, money, career, power. And I think it's easier to um, feel God's love actually with a, a broken heart. And that all, that's all God wants from us is just ourselves as a, a living sacrifice to mm. try to be his hands and, and bring the light and love mm. into this world. And that's exactly who in the Bible, Jesus loved the most and mm. reached out to the most were the marginalized. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's like, it talks so much in the Bible, you know, Old Testament knew about, um, you know, sort of the nomad coming through the widow, the orphans. And like, these are the people that we need to especially look out for. And I think in New York City, everyone's so, I mean, yes, we have a lot of intellectuals here who um, I think do care what's going on in the country and the world, but also there's a lot of people who are really focused on themselves and their yeah. own careers and ambitions. And it's really know. the zombie nar narrative that they're tuned out to everything else except what's right in front of them and not yeah. tuned into the larger narrative and how in prayer and meditation yeah. we can then widen the scope of our narrow vision be able to see everything, be able to see the larger um, landscape and try to um, take power and try to do, do empower ourselves, our communities to try yeah. to move forward. So one perspective I just want to throw out there 
is the idea that, uh, you know, all these narratives we tell ourselves about us, about who we are, who, who our community is, is all ultimately, you know, um, we have to disappear. We have to be able to say, you know, even though New York City may be the narrative is that they're all busy or they're all kind of power hungry or they're all like whatever it is, that whatever narrative we tell ourselves about New York City, uh, you know, just kind of saying that that's all just a social construct and we, we can be a New Yorker, we can be a, an American and we can do this and we can uh, move towards the higher narrative, which is that we're uh, helping others, we're empowering others, we're empowering our communities, we're empowering ourselves, we're moving forward towards the higher goals. Yeah, Right. And I yeah. think, um, and you know, I, should, I think there's a lot of people here in New York City who mm. really are others yeah. focused. Mm. Um, so, but um, yeah, I feel like at least my call is to love on others and, oh. um, and you know, some days I, I fail and I tend to be very inwardly focused. And I think that's what I love about stories, though, is it gives you the opportunity to get outside your own head and get in somebody else's head. And and that's what's always drawn me to writing. And so, yeah. And writing is a craft. Why we talk a little bit about how um, there was the one thing you brought up in your in our pre-interview questions about how uh, what is one way. What is one way in which um, a failure or something that, that went wrong has informed you? Mm. I think it was the question that you talked oh, a little yeah. bit about. What experience you reflect as a worship moment in your, in your process as well as failures um, and how that informs your process. And we could talk a little bit about kind of unpacking um, that experience in one moment. But first, I'll let you tell the experience and. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I said, you know, basically it's okay to fail. Um, uh, That's how you learn and grow. Mm. Take the risk. You won't always get it right the first time or the first hundred times. And I think the important thing is just to keep trying. Um, One of my, and I kind of brought up too one of my first pieces, which is still online. Don't, don't go look for this. (laughs) But um, it, um, yeah, it basically, it was kind of a failure in my mind. I got, a lot. I there was a lot of people commenting, just like predictable, ordinary, tired, mundane, and it was one of the first pieces that I had put out there publicly. Yeah. Um. And I tend to be, I'm a pretty open person with my friends and family, but when it comes to writing, and I think a lot of other authors understand this concept, of like your writing's your baby, and you you don't want to put it out there and see it get strangled. Like it's deeply. Um, I don't know. I just felt a lot of shame and and mm. what I put out there just wasn't good enough. People weren't connecting with it. Um, I just remember as the comments were coming in on this piece that was online, um, I was crying. I was just bawling my eyes out that day. And I was like, I never want to do this again. I never want to experience this again. All my worst fears are confirmed that I'm just not good enough. Um and later I realized actually a lot of the comments were from other writers who had stake in the game because it was it's um it's on this website, Everyday Fiction, where basically it's a voting system. And I had shared the story on social media. So a lot of my friends and family were going on there and had voted and given it a positive score. But because of that, it had like risen up in the rankings. And I think these other writers were like, This isn't that great, which they were right. It really, it really wasn't all that great. It was kind of mediocre. Um, But since then, I've taken more classes. um, I've read more books. I think reading is a way to make your own writing better. Um, And I found the courage to just keep trying to publish. Um, Stephen King and On Writing, which I think a lot of writers love his book because he just talks about how brutal the rejection process is at the beginning and um, how you just have to keep going. And I think even with Mount Kilimanjaro, it was 
that peak summit was just like hours and hours. You're in the dark. You can't see anything. You don't know when it's going to end. You don't know if you can make it. And it's that sense of, um, am I really going to get where I want to go? Can I do this? Is it worth how hard this is? And I really had to dig in and decide, yes, it's worth all these embarrassing rejections. Um, it's worth the struggle, the time, the effort. Um, and I'm still, I still have so much to, to learn and grow in my writing skills, but I feel like it's gotten better. But like the number one thing I think it's important for people in life to realize is, um, yeah, you're going to fail sometimes. And it's more about your response to the failure. Failure is inevitable for all of us in different things, but it's just, are you going to get back up again and give it another go? And, um, I think that's really important. Yeah, I think definitely. I think that when we receive criticism, and I've mentioned this in a few times in the show, that we're kind of getting a dialogue. We're getting that dialogue. As soon as it's something's hard for us to hear, hard for us to accept, and that we have to kind of take it with a grain of salt and take what it's trying to communicate as far as like art being a communal, mm-hmm. um, you know, communal thing that we're kind of form, that we're trying to communicate with other people, that mm-hmm. we're, we're, putting ourselves out there or putting ourselves into that forum. And that then what they're, what the receiving party is saying may not be, you know, they may not be hearing what we intend to say. Right. And being able to get to the point where what our process is and, and what our intention is, is communicated clearly to the receiving party right. is part of the, the struggle, you know, right. and, and just honoring the struggle that was not something just to disregard, but it's something that really, pursue and, and go the whole long mile with exactly because n- you're not going to yeah. be everybody's cup of tea mm-hmm. and yeah. i think the dialogue is really important and to a lot of those writers points what i wrote i do look back and i'm like yeah it was it was kind of mediocre yeah. it's one of my first pieces but i think because of that i've really wanted to mentor other young writers like i participate in the Re- redeemer writers group and mm-hmm. i think it's important how you say something you know there's a way to be constructive mm-hmm. with feedback and there's a way to just tear somebody down for yeah. the sake of tearing somebody down, making yourself feel better. So it really, I think when when I speak about something, especially if it's more of like a constructive thing, I'm like, what is my intention? What's the heart behind this? And it's to try to help that person grow and get better. And it's not to try to tear them down. And I think that's something I wish, even when it has to do with politics, like we mm-hmm. all have different views, you know, but standing across the aisle from somebody, I think it's an important thing to really just listen, try to understand their point of view, even if you don't agree with it. Um, communication is so key. Um, and it's really how you say something and what the intention is behind it, not always so much what you're saying. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think definitely we want to get to the point where we're communicating with that value-based communication. So it's not about, you know, um, always rejecting what other person's saying, but communicating to the highest part of the highest self of, that our opponent uh, so that then it's easy to be like, give a statement and have them say, no, not that. But rather mm-hmm. we want to have like a, a dialogue where we have truth met with truth so that then they can have form a synthesis. I think mm-hmm. two truths only form a synthesis, you know, rather than, you know, um, you know, negations, you know, you can't just go, I don't know how this works out. But for me, at least when I say statement is true, and you just tell me it's not true. It's not mm-hmm. going to help me. But when you give me opposing truth, right. then we can just synthesize and create a, a new truth yeah. from between us. And know? I think in just like being willing to um, evaluate things and, mm-hmm. and be willing to say, maybe I, I was wrong about yeah. how I felt about that before. You know, it's like a, 
it's a growing process and we all come from different backgrounds. And mm. I think the important thing, I think a real sign of a mature person is someone who can sit there and say, yeah, I, I was wrong about that. I've yeah. since like grown and now I see things in a new way. Yeah. Um, or just, you know, even if you're, if it's a truth that you hold very strongly to it, but somebody else too, just at least being willing to listen um, and say, okay, I understand where you're coming from. This is where I'm coming from. Yeah. But um, I think it's important just to come from, you know, like a, like listen first. <laughs> yeah. I think definitely, I think when we have uh, an ego driven perspective, you know, we're kind of thinking like I'm right. All the person's wrong. Yeah. This kind of thing, that the kind of narrative we build up for ourselves, that this is very important to take on the perspective that we're in dialogue with um, that the truth that I sit, sit in right here in this, in this point of view comes authentically from where I'm sitting. And that mm-hmm. the truth where you're sitting comes with thankfully where you're sitting. So I have to acknowledge that I don't know the truth from where you're sitting. Mm-hmm. So I don't have the power to be able to know that. But that's okay. And that's just yeah. the limits of our perspective. That's you why know? you do this that's podcast, why, yeah, exactly. right? You yeah. get to like pick yeah. up people's brains yeah. and see yeah, how yeah. they came. I think it's great. <laughs> I think it's very important for a practice to be able to have this dialogue. I wish I could have this dialogue in real life. But <laughs> I don't know. I feel like this level of dialogue is sometimes difficult to achieve in, you know, in, in, in yeah. normal everyday life so it's, it's yeah. true that's yeah. why i love getting it's a little scary because yeah. i don't really get this deep in, yeah. in everyday yeah, conversation exactly, all the time yeah. i mean there's yeah. time i think the redeemer writers group we we yeah. really do try to at least once a month normally there's a, yeah. a subject and theme and we can kind of delve a little bit um deeper into things which mm. is which is cool yeah and then also uh let's talk a little bit about i'll pull out some of the themes you brought in your um pre-interview questions uh specific truths and the ways for your empowerment i think the question was in what way does specific truth act as a way for your empowerment? Uh, so talking a bit about how um, you talk a little bit about how your, your healthcare professional uh, and how that helps you to be able to see uh, others in a different light, you know, be able to equalize others, equalize yourself with others, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Tell us a little bit about how your day job, if you will, kind of influences your perspective or gives you practice and your faith and, 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 and I'll share from there. Yeah. 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 Um, yep. So I work in healthcare. Um, you know, I, I for a long time worked in a busy emergency room and I think an emergency room is an equalizer, right? Like you, you get the millionaires coming in, you get the homeless coming in. And my job is to take care of everybody and give them the very best care and attention they deserve. It Mm. doesn't matter like on the outside, how important they are or like how the world views them, you know, if they like the homeless person that the world kind of ignores. Everybody there is important and deserves my time and attention and life-saving care. Um, and I think at the end of the day, we're all like that emotionally and spiritually. We all need saving. We're all humans, um, equal. We all need love. So no matter how much money or worldly power we have or, or don't have, I think... Um, you know, it's just taught me that everybody needs saving spiritually in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think I used to be, um, I just remember I worked as like a nurse tech prior to going on to my graduate program. And um, that's kind of where I realized that I'd, I was a really shy person growing up and it helped me uh, get help me come out of my shell and talk to others, seeing them in that vulnerable position, but also seeing, you know, like this, I'm just thinking of one person where I came from, there was like uh, this political figure who had 
had a stroke and was hospitalized. And then like the next room would be this homeless person. And it gave me the chance to talk to people at different echelons of society and realize at the, at the core, we're all the same. We all want the same thing. Mm. And the end, you know, a lot of them, especially as they were really sick, they just wanted to be around their friends and family. And those mm. were the stories they shared that were most important to them about kind of, um, you know, it didn't come down to how many houses they owned or yeah. didn't know it was, it was are there people around me who love me? That's what they wanted. And um, I think it gave me a different perspective on at the core. We all want the same thing. And it allowed me to come out of my shell and connect and talk with people um, and be able to say, hey, like your needs are just as important as my needs. And let's let's be heard and um, let's try to meet each other's needs. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that um, we have these layers of identity you know, of what we uh, associate with and the circles in which we run in. And we have the innermost layer is, is the same for everyone. The, the innermost layer is that we're, we're vulnerable, we're, we're exposed, we're out there, we're putting ourselves out there, we're kind of, and we try to hide that, you know, we try mm-hmm. to just conceal that. We're putting these other layers of identity that, you know, that have the certain, um, you know, roles or certain things that, that we built in understanding logical systems in which they roll in. So I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a, I'm a, uh, brother i'm a um i'm a manager i'm a this i'm a that and mm-hmm. kind of, I'm, I'm also all these different roles that which i occupy space in which mm-hmm. i occupy we have certain um logical things i have to do in order to fulfill those roles yeah but i think you know one of the things that i think i understand from religious traditions that are innermost thing we should keep within us is that we're connected to the divine energy and that that we're being moved by divine energy and i would even go so far as to say that you know, Christ consciousness is that we identify with Christ. You know, I don't know mm-hmm. if this is actually, because this is something I kind of mixed in with my perspective. You know, I haven't grown up. I went to Catholic school growing up. Oh, me too. And yeah, I went to high school, uh, <laughs> so first through eighth grade. Okay. And then, uh, and then, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, I watched the uh, last patient of Christ got all exposed to the Gnostic, uh, interpretation, uh, which I hadn't been really trained in or not. You watch what? Sorry. Last Patient of Christ, which okay. is the Scorsese film. I still want to read the oh, book. I'm going to be reading okay. the book soon. It's uh, by Kazantzakis, uh, Nikos Kazantzakis, who wrote the book. And it has kind of a Gnostic interpretation of the Christian story. My understanding mm-hmm. is the least of that. Uh, and um, uh, kind of being exposed a little bit to different interpretations of mm-hmm. the Christian narrative. And then mm-hmm. uh, kind of being trained in the Buddhist tradition a little bit. So I'm just thinking my own perspective is that, you know, we have to kind of take on the role of the Christian, the Christ, uh, that we have to secretly at least kind of be that, you know, you know, that I myself will, will help save everyone. And, you know, even in the Zen tradition, they talk about, uh, I have the Bodhisattva vows, uh, that, um, living beings are numberless. I vow to save them all, mm-hmm. you know, confusion are inexhaustible. I vow to cut them all off. Uh, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. And the Buddha way is unattainable. I vow to attain it. So this can mm-hmm. actually be, you know, even the Christian perspective that the Christian way, the Christ way is, is untainable. What do you think about yeah, that? Yeah. I think, I guess I come at it from a little different perspective in that um, I feel like as much as I want to be the, the savior for other people, I'm yeah. never, I'm always going to fall short. I'm yeah. never going to be good enough. Um, but whereas Christ is, yeah, he was perfect, whereas I cannot be perfect. And so it's kind of a choice to say, um, stand before God and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm never as much as I try. I'm never going to be good enough because I'm human and I'm broken. And I think in that way, maybe it's a little different in that, um, you know, the Christian perspective is that that God sent Christ down in order to save 
this lot of failures on, mm. on the planet that we're never going to be good enough. And, you know, part of it's like, well, God, you made us like how, you know, how come you gave us this yeah. choice where we could become these like broken human beings? And that's a question for, I still wrestle with, but, you mm. know, I, I do, I've come to the point where I believe that there was a man named Christ who lived, who was also God and that he lived a perfect life. And because of that perfect life, I can say, I'm not good enough, God, but he was the ultimate sacrifice for me. And now all I can do is um, with my heart every day, try to sacrifice and live in a Christ-like model, kind mm. of like I'm never going to be that good, but to try to model my life after his life of sacrificial living and loving on others. And kind of going back to what you're saying earlier, um, and what I was talking about with healthcare, I think maybe a better way to describe it is every, a lot of us feel like we're always wearing like a mask. Mm. Like we don't want to show our true selves, especially in New York City, when um, to be vulnerable is to easily get taken advantage of, unfortunately. Like the mm. city has definitely um, kicked my butt in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and I've had some <laughs> like interesting experiences here where I feel uh, like I was taken advantage of. And, and so I like sometimes put on this really tough ex exterior. Um, and I feel like we have to have these masks around other people and it may depend who you're with. And um, I think my faith has given me the opportunity to sort of take off that mask mm. and uh, be like, all right, this is who I am, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I'm growing and I'm learning and I'm trying to do things better each and every day. Mm. Um, and what's nice about my faith is like, God, you know, he knows that I'm never going to be perfect. And, you know, I'm just trying to to get better each and every day as I grow in like my faith and understanding of who he is. Yeah. You know, I definitely agree. And I think that one thing that I'm trying to test out or trying to get field uh, theory that I'm trying to fill out, I don't even know how prevalent it is or where it's coming from. But uh, I just kind of piecing together that, you know, we have the perspective, you know, some people have the image or perspective like Christ drive for us or like Christ take, take the wheel and drive. You know, oh, I think yeah. it's from a song. Carrie Underwood. Yeah, I think it's from a <laughs> Jesus song. Jesus Take I the Wheel. Jesus Take the Wheel. Oh, there's a lot. I think there's yeah, another yeah. song there's also. Probably. There's a couple of songs where they, you know, they talk about that. <laughs> and thinking about how, what if like Christ were to drive our life, mm -hmm. uh, and yet he had to, he or the, this divine energy would have to uh, conform to the norms that we'd established and then and try to transform them. And, and what would that even look like? What would that even be like if we were to kind of secretly be driven by Christ? And how would that, how would we embody that? How would we kind of, be ourselves and yet be both both fully present in the divine energy as well as in our human energy and mm -hmm. and and kind of letting go of judgments and stuff like that. But it's something to think about and sit with. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But let me just quickly do a couple of shout outs. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn, we're listening to Truth to Power Show. And uh, once again, this is about how we find our personal truths and let us empower ourselves in our communities. Thanks for listening to Ready for Brooklyn. Your support keeps us going. Ready for Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us continue to stay on air, support independent community media by pledging wherever you can, afford uh, all contributions to tax deductible to the federal center law. Please support with a monthly pledge, a one-time donation at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, Ready for Brooklyn's Drive to Five fundraising campaign is underway. In May, RFB turns five years old. We need to raise $25,000 so we continue to bring us Commercial, free, independent community media, uh, radio for another five years. Because we think raising money should be fun. Each month we will bring listeners fun challenges and some great prizes. This month's challenge is a quiz to find out how well you know Bushwick. Our top five scores will win a limited edition five-year anniversary RFP t-shirt. Please enter Shoot the Power Show as your favorite show when taking the quiz, and I'll get a prize as well. 
You can um, you can uh, take the quiz, make a donation, or find out more at reefwindorg slash drive to five. You can also dial 718-673-8201. Leave us a message letting us know why you love RFB or to wish us a happy birthday. Your message may be played on air. So you want to read a poem as well? Do you want to close yeah. out with a poem? Yeah. Do I have time? I think it's yeah, I think we have, we have, okay. we have yeah. All probably, right. So I wrote this for um, Annette and Brian, and I got to share it at their wedding last year. So um, it's called Now We Will Say I Do. With you, my love, I can be still. I can stop the doing, close my eyes, and feel the warmth of your fingertips next to mine and know that I'm worthy and cherished just as I am. Love is entering the quiet woods together, muddy hiking boots laced tight, sweat dripping down our brows, the eastern kingbirds and song sparrows trilling tunes that make our spirits soar alongside theirs. When we visibly breathe in and out the dewy mountain air, your breath becoming my breath. Love is Tuesday nights when we receive our small shipment of oddly shaped fruits and vegetables, the misfit produce from local farms, and we make a guessing game of what some of the more strange-looking ones are. Before we baptize them in a stream of steaming water and dice and boil and bake this collage of colors, creating art that nourishes both body and soul. Love is when the day is nearly over, sun disappearing behind the horizon in a splash of orange, and we sit beside each other sharing stories. Some our own tales from the day's adventures, some from the pages of a favorite book, our life chapters becoming more and more intertwined. Love is picnics in the park with family and friends, where laughter and the barking of dogs and babbling of babies reminds us that the simple, too, is sacred. That these are the minutes that matter most. And in both the moments of doing and moments of rest, I choose to be by your side. For it is together with you, my love, that I want to walk this earth and chase dreams. And at the end of the road, when our hair is gray and our bodies tired, I will still be holding tight to your beautifully knobbed knuckles. So here today, before God and family and friends, and even horses and goats, we will both say I do to the ride of a lifetime. To traveling the world together, to naps in the sun, to wiping away each other's tears when life deals one of us a heavy blow, to nights out dancing and nights spent sprawled out on the rug reading aloud to one another, to 7 a.m. yoga and 7 p.m. meal prep. Love is the magic that transforms the quotidian into something majestic and inspires us to live more fully. At times doing more, and when the doing robs us of that which we care most deeply about, doing less. But there is one I do that I commit to today and every day for the rest of our lives, and that is to love you always in moments both big and small. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Thanks, you. PJ. I really appreciate that. Um, so now why don't you tell us a little bit about where we can, uh, shout outs to where we can follow you or where we can uh, yeah. uh, find out more of what you're reading, and then we'll go out with the song. And okay. tell, you can set up the song as well. Oh, uh, yeah. You okay. Say, I think. You say yeah. by Lauren Daigle. She's yeah. one of my. Um, I got introduced to her this past, not introduced like in person, but I got introduced to her music this past year. Uh, a lot of people say she sounds like Adele. I think she does. Um, I just really love her lyrics. They're beautiful, and I love her voice. And this is this song has been super meaningful to me recently, and it's really spoken in my heart. So I wanted to share that. Um, what did you? Uh, but where else? Where else are you going to follow you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ray Printy is my Instagram name. Um, and my, uh, R-A-E, right? R-A-E. R-A-E. Thank yeah. you. Good. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. yeah. My sister, she calls me that. So that's how, yeah. Um, that's my nickname. Um, so rachel.printy at wordpress.com is my website. I really need to fix it up. I don't even think I have like a picture on it. Sad. So 
<laughs> I th- I've had this like the the photo area saying like under construction, be back soon <laughs> um, and just haven't done it. But yeah, yeah, that's where you can find a couple. That's where you can find the full story, Susia, which was originally published in Lit Magazine. I put it on there now. That's where you can find the story about Kilimanjaro, actually. So if you want to kind of read both of those stories. Um, yeah, it's probably the best way to Ra- right, Rachel Printy on Twitter, but I don't, I don't really tweet much. Yeah. yeah. Great. Great. So, um, this is the truth to power show. People can follow us on, uh, Instagram at truth to power show. I don't really post that much again. I don't really post that much on Instagram either, but a uh, truth to power show. I'm also on uh, Facebook, BJR Nathan poet. And, uh, you can just look up, uh, old episodes at radiofrooklyn.org slash truth to power or rfb.nyc slash TTP. And then you can find out some little more about the older episodes. Uh, this, this is somewhere in the hundreds episode. I don't know, like 110 or something. I don't even remember. <laughs> but uh, so we'll play. We'll go out with this song. And uh, it's every Monday at 8 a.m. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you, VJ. This is a great opportunity to be here. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's really great. It's a song, <laughs> Good chat. Yeah. Good chat. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> a place to lay its head so I Uh, we just want to comment that uh, this song actually is Look Up Child, but it's the same artist. Same artist. Same but, artist, but, yeah. but You Say is also really good, so if you get yeah. the chance, look up You Say. But, yeah. uh, but uh, this one, I haven't heard this one, so I'm excited to hear it. Oh, uh, cool, cool. Thank <laughs> cool. you. See you.